Hi, and welcome to Ethics in Marketing podcast. My name is Mikhail Mizgin, and today I joined by Colin Gray. We talk about manipulation in marketing and specifically dark patterns, different types of dark patterns, how marketers can recognize them, how manipulation is perceived by people, the rise of ethical awareness, ways to become a more ethical marketer, legislation and liability, tensions between ethical identity and business realities, and much more. Hi, Colin. Thanks so much for coming. Hi, great to be on. Maybe you could introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, My name is Colin Gray. I'm an associate professor at Purdue University. It's located in Indiana in the United States. Um, And there I train the next generation of UX design students. Um, On the side, I do um, a lot of research specifically focusing these days on dark patterns and deceptive design, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about today. I've read a few of your works and you've been studying dark patterns for a few years. And that's the subject uh, I'm really interested in because it's a kind of like manipulation that happens a lot in marketing. So maybe you could explain what's so fascinating about dark patterns. Yeah, so the idea of dark patterns um, sounds very uh, approachable to anybody that does digital marketing work. I originally trained as a graphic designer, um, and certainly a lot of the principles that are behind dark patterns could very easily be construed as persuasion or manipulation. Um, And so a lot of this I would take back to the 1960s when sort of the original marketers, um, these were uh, visual communication designers at the time, uh, sort of called out the ad industry and said, you know, it's problematic. You keep on making us lie to sell things. And we don't like that. We don't want to be used as pawns to just make things more visually appealing. In fact, we need to have an ethical code behind um, the, the work that we do. Um, And so there was an original report back in the 60s that many people signed on to in the ad industry. Obviously, things didn't change very much, though. And so this modern instantiation, what um, Harry Brignall, um, a a practitioner in the United Kingdom, has called dark patterns, um, coined the term in 2010, um, really describes these instances where persuasion and manipulation are being used, but in ways that really subvert the autonomy or the agency of the user. And so in many ways, this can be seen as similar to tactics that have been used for advertising for centuries. Uh, The new things, though, that I think make dark patterns specifically uh, problematic and why they're becoming increasingly a target of regulatory scrutiny is because these dark patterns can be used very effectively without the user necessarily knowing that they're going on. Or even if the user recognizes that their agency or autonomy is being subverted, they don't really have a lot of choices. So if you're using a big tech platform, if that tech platform uses dark patterns, you often don't have a lot of other good parallel choices to make. Um, And in the case of even something like uh, cookie banners uh, that describe whether you're willing to give up your data or not, the ways that these um, notices are being framed um, and the the UI choices that are being made actually make it very difficult for a user to exercise their choices, even if they know exactly what they want to be able to accomplish. Um, Adding one more layer of complexity to that, uh, it's probably no surprise to people in marketing and digital advertising that um, algorithms and machine learning and other uh, algorithmically derived techniques are increasingly driving our digital experiences. And so those are all ways to actually add even more power to these dark patterns, which are already quite uh, problematic and quite uh, manipulative in their their root form. Yeah, it's pervasive. It's, It's everywhere. But uh, trying to understand the nature of, of this phenomenon, 
and you said persuasion and manipulation. And definitely these words uh, uh, have different kind of connotation to them. Manipulation has this negative connotation. Nobody wants to be manipulated. And people usually think about themselves as good people. They have, uh, they want to maintain positive moral self-image. Persuasion is a bit different. So what's, what's the difference? Is persuasive viewed in a more positive way? And how do you draw the distinction here? It's a very uh, difficult line to draw, for sure. Um, and so I'm, I do moral philosophy work on the side. I'm going to try not to make this into a discussion of philosophy in a very direct sense. But I think that we do need to bring in some of these concepts uh, to describe some of what's at play. Um, and so, as you mentioned, you know, we all want to be good people. Um, and so there's this framing of our morality, which is focused on, you know, what philosophers would call virtue ethics. You know, I want to do the right thing. I want to be a good person. I want to be self-actualized in ways that society re recognizes as good. Um, and there are a lot of professions, marketing included, that don't always have the most positive public perception uh, because th there's sort of knowledge that there are these tactics that are being used that are maybe not always above board, or even if they're above board, they still make people feel uncomfortable. And so when you bring into this conversation um, some other framings of morality or other framings of moral philosophy, uh, we can start to identify maybe what some other uh, sources might be that, that could be useful. Um, and so, you know, there's the, the, the deontological standards. These are standards of the things that you should do. Um, and so in the marketing and advertising world, these would be best practices or standards or regulatory practices. So in the United States, we have the Federal Trade Commission, and they've set out practices what it means to um, have deceptive advertising. Um, and so there, there are certain things that you just cannot do. Um, and so uh, those are some other sources of knowledge that we can bring in with us. Codes of ethics um, are also useful in that sort of framing. Um, and then one of the other branches, which isn't actually explored as much in my experience in the advertising and marketing space, is uh, the consequentialist framing. So this is essentially considering what would happen if this became a widespread practice or um, what are some unanticipated consequences that people might feel, even if we don't intend for those things to happen, what if they actually happened? Um, and so increasingly, the conversation around dark patterns is turning more towards that consequentialist stance where we're starting to identify, okay, even something like GDPR, which is great as a starting point for data privacy, which impacts um, digital advertising in many, many different ways. Um, that was really great as a set of practices, but now we're actually seeing what the market impacts of that are, and we're identifying where there are holes in the original GDPR provisions. Digital Services Act is going to correct some of those things. We're also identifying um, specifically in relation to dark patterns, that for certain kinds of dark patterns, um, education level or levels of technological literacy are really, really important in ways that maybe we didn't fully understand before. Um, and so some practices which might be fine for the average citizen might actually disadvantage people who are already uh, systemically disempowered or disadvantaged. Um, and then we're also identifying um, different attitudes towards data or different attitudes towards how people want to engage in um, e-commerce that we might not have been able to predict five or 10 years ago, but we actually know um, these practices can be really easily used uh, to manipulate people in ways that are well beyond what a normal citizen would expect. So that's at least maybe a, a starting point to, to ground ourselves in moral philosophy to start to think about what, what sources of evidence we might want to go towards. Yeah, just maybe to create a better understanding, um, 
those dark patterns, maybe you could give us a, a few examples. Yeah, so um, there are sort of two key sources of examples which are almost everyone will have experienced at some point in their digital life. Uh, one category would be e-commerce examples. And in fact, Brignall's original patterns that he proposed back in 2010 and 2011, many of them were specifically geared around e-commerce, um, and those have continued to expand into the present day. Um, the other category would be um, uh, patterns that relate to um, to data or settings, which is in also increasingly a part of our everyday lives due to GDPR, mm -hmm. and in the United States, the CPA, or the CPRA, um, the CCPA, and other and other legis um, legislation regulation that's uh, pending or in action already. So, looking at e-commerce for a second, uh, we can take even some of the original uh, terms from Brignall. Um, one of his classic uh, patterns was sneak into basket. And so this is an example where you're going about um, buying some products on a website, you get to the final checkout screen, and you notice that a new item is on that checkout screen in your shopping basket that you never added yourself, something that the system added for you. And so the system is hoping, or the in this case, the, the, the marketer is hoping that you don't notice that the item is in there, that you check out with it in the basket, and that you end up paying more money than you originally planned on paying. Uh, because of that product exposure. Um, another example of this that's um, more relevant these days based on some um, work that um, Arunesh Matur and colleagues uh, did in 2019, focusing on a, an algorithmic crawl of e-commerce uh, sites, are a number of other deceitful tactics that rely on scarcity bias or rely on these other cognitive or social biases that we have. Um, this, is, this would be an example like if you go on to uh, travel site to book a flight or to book a hotel room. And it says only three of these are left at this price. Buy now. Or, um, you know, Colin is looking at this hotel room right now. And so in most yeah. cases, those are driven by just some very simple bits of JavaScript. There's nothing fancy or elaborate about them, but they're deceitful. They're, they're telling a lie because those, um, that scarcity often isn't matched with reality. Um, and often it's using some of these known psychological tactics to get somebody to buy something more quickly in, when under different conditions, they wouldn't necessarily feel the same rush to purchase. So those are common things that we see in our everyday digital experience. Even if they're more algorithmically driven and they maybe are derived from real data, it's very difficult for a consumer to know the difference. Um, these can still be really problematic um, where they shift from persuasion into manipulation or coercion. Um, the other um, set of examples, though, are a little bit more ephemeral um, in that they're part of our everyday user experience, uh, but we've grown so used to them that we've become complacent. And so the easiest place um, in the era of GDPR to go is the cookie consent banner, because we see these every time we go to a new website that pops up on the bottom or pops up um, over the frame, and we have to make a decision, and we have to make a decision really quickly. The best case, and this isn't the norm still, would be to have a button that says accept all and a button that says reject all, and then maybe uh, some more options if you really want to configure something. Um, and those items would be styled exactly the same, so it doesn't give preference to either one of those um, as a perceived default. The reality is quite different, as probably anybody that's come across one of these banners knows. Um, instead, the most common framing is often accept all in a bright colored button and more options. It's an option, at least I've seen the, the, the most. And so it actually requires a lot more effort to say no than it does to say yes. And when you're confronted with those more options, you're actually given a litany of choices 
Um, in some cases, this has involved selecting over a hundred different trackers and then figuring out are these legitimate purposes or not, or do I agree or disagree with all these different trackers, even though I might not understand what all of them are. And so this is a very common example of uh, what uh, my work is called interface interference, where it's um, calling attention to certain items as being the default more than others, encouraging a user to accept all rather than to reject or to configure. Um, and it's also using obstructive tactics or sneaking tactics to um, delay the divulging of important information that might guide somebody's decision, um, or in some cases might even nag them into making that decision over and over again until you make the, the right decision for the website operator, which would be to accept all tracking. So lots and lots of examples out there, but hopefully that gives people a starting point to think about when they might have uh, seen these dark patterns in their everyday digital lives. Yeah, and you know, from a marketing perspective, actually was trying to uh, configure a cookie banner yesterday. And so I'm doing it from, from the other side. And I was reviewing different apps for Shopify. And there are a uh, ton of apps that actually, like uh, they say, become a GDPR compliant, you know, like one-click installation. And so what I'm finding is that a lot of these apps do not have an option to have reject all or accept all or configure buttons. So as a marketer, I actually install this app and what I have by default is, hey, this is a cookie banner and one only button, got it, accept, no rejection at all. Some of them allow configuration, but I actually spent several hours trying to figure it out. And I'm a tech savvy person, you know, I. Uh, it's not a problem for me, like, uh, usually to configure things like this, but it, it demonstrates what kind of uh, cultural environment we're in. The default options in all these ba banners is that if you do not uh, consent, if you do not engage with this banner, cookies are saved by default. If you just close this banner, cookies are saved by default, un unless you reconfigure it. So that's, for me, a very uh, good demonstration of what it is all about for most of the people out there. They're, you know, at best looking to be compliant and not really respect or value privacy of users, even though the banner usually says that we value privacy, which is ironic in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the tensions that you're describing, I think, are um, very important for where the regulatory conversation is right now as well, because there are these regulatory demands with um, GDPR and others around what you should do. And a lot of the specific design choices around how you actually accomplish some of those goals are actively working their way through uh, the DPAs right now in the EU. Um, and so there's been a lot of different guidance about what it what kinds of options you need to present and in what format and what language you need to use. And this is also a very important part of the scholarly conversation right now as well. Uh, but I think the point that you raised around, you know, what if I'm not able to easily configure those things using the platform that I'm using? Um, that's where these consent management platforms or CMPs become really, really important players uh, because they actually have a vested interest in following the law and following the regulatory practices that are sort of still being defined and, and firmed up. Um, and in fact, one of the conversations right now is around, you know, should there be liability for these CMPs if they don't by default provide what should be lawful? And so it's okay to, to maybe provide configurability options, but to present a default that 
people sort of know are, is not in line with uh, GDPR regulations, that's, I think, really problematic because then it's pushing all of the design decisions downstream to an individual um, marketing professional who may not have a working knowledge of, of the law. And in fact, you know, in some of the publications that I put out with um, EU legal scholars, it's complicated. There are lots of things to consider. There are many different design decisions that are still sort of being actively disputed. So even the example that you gave of if you click out of a cookie consent banner, is are your is your data still being tracked? Well, that's an active point of consideration right now. Does um, xing out mean no, or does it mean yes, or does it mean later? Um, and so there are a number of these questions which I think. Um, marketing professionals need to be aware of, even if they don't necessarily have all the legal working knowledge, but also they need to demand better of the consent management platforms that they, that they utilize as well to make sure that the money that they're paying is actually resulting in a product that is actually compliant. Going back to dark patterns. So there could be so, so many different types of dark patterns out there, like hidden price. And when you get a subscription, you know, that, that you thought you just subscribed for free trial and then you discover billing that was silently happening. And as you pointed out somewhere, I think the initial aim of Harry was to try to shame people into not doing these practices. So he created the website and this hall of shame. For me as a marketer on the other side, I know that a lot of this stuff happens by ignorance rather than by uh with an intent to deceive users potential customers people and the first question for me is as a marketer how can i be aware like how can i critically assess what i'm doing like what is what is the starting point for me to figure out the best ethical way to design whatever I want to design, whether it's a marketing campaign or website or a tool, anything. Yeah. And that is, I think, the million dollar, million euro question right there is, is like how, or maybe billion, uh, how do you really know that you're designing something that's ethically sound? Um, and there are a number of different factors to consider, but there is no like one checklist that's going to guarantee that you've got it right. And in fact, you know, the ethicality of any digital product is, is part of an evolving social conversation. Uh, things that we wouldn't have even considered a decade ago are now our everyday reality. Um, and so it would have been very difficult for a designer maybe 10 years ago to anticipate some of those needs. So this is something that has to be a refreshing of, um, every practitioner's um, sort of ethical code, but also their awareness of how things can be used in really improper ways to undermine users' agency and autonomy. Um, so there are a couple of things that I might suggest as a starting point. Um, so uh, one piece, which may already be in, the, in, the, in place in many of the organizations where your listeners work, um, would be really um, relying upon uh, people that are doing active uh, user research. And I don't primarily mean survey research here. I, I'm referring to research that's really helping you get at the core of what does it mean when users are using your product? What are the expectations that they have? What are some of their concerns? How, what are some of the ways they feel like they're being taken advantage of? Um, the second category of things are really heuristics that um, a practitioner can use to make sure that they are constantly considering not just how could something go absolutely correct or how could we get the KPIs that we want our company to have to succeed, 
um, but instead to really consider how might users experience this product and are they experiencing it in a way that actually values their intelligence and values their, their ability to use digital products. So in my original 2018 paper where I described um, this sort of landscape of dark patterns building on Harry's work, um, I identified five different what I call dark pattern strategies. And so these are strategies that um, somebody might be using with very deceptive intent, or they might just be using it because they think it's going to help them achieve the KPIs that they have in mind. Um, but either way, it's actually undermining the user's autonomy and agency in some way. So even going through these five strategies, and I'll add a sixth based on Arunesh Matur's work and others, um, those are questions that I think any um, digital marketer could ask themselves. So the first one is nagging. Am I, am I asking the user over and over and over again, hoping that eventually their answer will be yes? If the answer is yes, then maybe there are ways to time limit the nagging or to remove it entirely. Um, abstraction. Am I making a process more difficult than it needs to be with the intent of dissuading certain interactions? So classic example of this these days would be um, Amazon Prime. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, conversation in the EU, the Norwegian Consumer mm -hmm. Council report, around how difficult it was to unsubscribe from Amazon Prime. They've now made the process easier, but only for EU member states. People yeah, back in the United is... States are still stuck with the old process, which is really problematically obstructive. Um, sneaking. So am I hiding or delaying the divulging of really important information that might be relevant to a user to help them make an informed decision? Um, am I using any interface tricks to get people to do the right, the, the thing that I think is right, rather than the thing that might be in their own best interest? So this could be anything from toying with emotion, like confirm shaming, where you're saying, you know, you're a horrible person if you don't sign up for this newsletter right now, to simple interface tweaks, like um, having one button have a colored background and the other one not have a colored background, therefore using perceptual psychology to encourage somebody to perceive one option as the default option. And then the fifth category that I label in my original paper was forced action, where you're just forcing people to do something, to go along with something, whether they want to or not. This could be a forced trial or, or a forced sign up to access a freemium product. Um, this could be forcing somebody to sign up for a newsletter or share data about their contact list in order to get other functionality. But it's something that they're often very aware of. The sixth category that I'd add these days based on Arnesh's work is, um, is social engineering. So am I using knowledge of human and social psychology to get people to do things that I want them to do. So this could be um, using social proof or using scarcity biases or other things like this that acknowledge that we live in this larger community and that there are ways of swaying people's opinion based on what they think other people are doing. So those are a great starting point to just ask yourself those questions about your design. And if the answer is yes, or even possibly, there are probably some, some opportunities for iteration. Yeah, it's a great starting point. I know from my own experience, because I used some of these uh, dark patterns in my own work in the past until I, I came across Harry's work uh, several years ago. And, you know, it's not always easy to critically assess, like, literally everything you do, because we usually, like, in the real world environment, we have so much to do. We have the pressure from management. We need things to get done fast. And sometimes we just do, sometimes we just copy things that other people do without questioning them. We don't always have the luxury of time. And I think like, you know, it's very difficult to expect to change all these things overnight. But just starting thinking about this, just being aware 
that you with time can engage less and less in these practices. Which brings me to a point like, okay, so I'm aware of these dark patterns and I consider them to be unethical, but there is this conflict of the company needs and my ethical identity. I consider a certain practice to be harmful, unethical, but at the same time, there is a requirement for me to implement something like this. So what's, what can you tell me about this problem? <laughs> this is definitely a common problem. Um, it's something We've heard this story many, many, many times in our interactions with practitioners across a range of different professions, not just marketing. Um, and, uh, you know, we describe this in some of our work as, um, as ethical mediation. There isn't just one set of ethical standards that you can go to and just go down the checklist and identify for everyone for all time, is this going to be the right decision or not? Um, in, and in many cases, and I experienced this as a former practitioner myself, um, there will be cases where your own ethical and moral code is in conflict with some of the business demands that you're being faced with. And so in that moment, you have to decide, what do I do? Um, and so there are a few different tactics that we have seen, um, uh, practitioners, I think successfully use, um, one, which is increasingly prominent is the threat of litigation and regulation, <laughs> uh, which is actually a really wow. powerful incentive for many companies. Um, it isn't exactly leading with the carrot, it's leading with the stick. Um, but fortunately there are, I think some well-documented cases now that are showing substantial legal um, legal and financial liability uh, for the worst of these practices. Um, sometimes it's coming. Good. Uh, do you mean like uh, they threaten to become a whistleblower, or do they threaten like, oh, it's this is a liability for us as an organization? Yeah, I think framing it primarily as a liability. That's where it becomes really helpful because often there, that's a known kind of protection within an organization. You know, we want to protect ourselves from legal liability. There, you know, in those kinds of conversations, it's less useful to say, these are human beings that we're targeting. Don't, wouldn't it be better if we value their intelligence? Even though yeah. as a human being, I would like that to be the leading argument. That doesn't, isn't always the most successful leading argument within organizations. And so one of the only things that's going to get fight back against some of these organization level KPIs is, is that conversation of liability. Um, I think in other cases, um, it's identification of other patterns that are maybe less offensive or less problematic that could achieve some of the same aims. Um, so as you mentioned, you know, many designers have used dark patterns in their work without necessarily knowing that they're doing it. And in fact, there are multiple websites that I'm aware of now. I'm not going to share any of the names now, uh, but that essentially have repackaged dark patterns in more palatable forms so that marketers will purchase them and incorporate them on their website. They've, in some cases, identified slightly prettier names for some of these dark patterns. And I don't know if they've done it explicitly to say, let's convert dark patterns into things which are marketing products. But the kinds of biases, cognitive biases, social biases that they're, they're using to really inform those patterns are exactly the same. And so it's very possible that some designers, um, some marketers could select some of these patterns without actually knowing or thinking about the ethical calculus. And so one level that um, my lab's work has really been focused on for the last four or five years has been um, increasing people's ethical awareness and ethical competency. And so this is just simply saying there are lots of these attitudes and patterns out there that encourage certain kinds of manipulation, deception, um, coercion, or you know, maybe misdirected persuasion. 
um, and we need to be more aware of them. It doesn't necessarily always tell you to act, but at least it lets you know there's a problem. And then you can think about what, are, what arsenal of tools can I use to actually maybe steer the conversation? Not saying we're going to get rid of all these practices overnight, because we're not. There will always be sort of the dark side of marketing or any discipline where new evil tactics will emerge to replace the ones that have been regulated out of existence. Certainly has happened in the history of advertising and marketing. Um, but what we can do is identify what are some of the practices that I do have control over or that I can steer into maybe slightly softer versions and hopefully over time create um, a digital world that's a little bit more friendly for us all. Um, and that's, that really requires not only knowledge of like what's lawful or not, which is part of the conversation, but also how do we want to think about the people that we're designing for? And as an organization, what are our values in engaging those users? Um, you know, do we really believe that um, we're always going to get the best metrics by deceiving them rather than giving them all the information and letting them make the decision that's right for them? And that's, I think, part of a, a longer conversation that every technology discipline has to have, not just marketing, um, but it can start with some pretty small steps. Going back to, to your first point of bringing up liability as a kind of mechanism to try to implement more ethical solutions, I sometimes get an argument that, well, that's not illegal because there is this gap between uh, legislation, especially in, in digital environment, that uh, it's, it's very incomplete and vast amount of tools and possibilities for manipulation. There is a huge gap. So there's a lot of stuff uh, you can do in terms of manipulation that is not illegal. And I think some of the manipulation will just not possible to legislate somehow. You can't, you can't write laws about it. There's a lot of too nuanced to topics and aspects of especially language, you know. It's very difficult to regulate. So... This leaves us in an environment where you don't have a lot of tools for persuasion internally, right? Uh, trying to uh, raise awareness of ethical problems. And so wh what I'm trying to, to say is that oftentimes there is just not much you can do. Sometimes there is just nothing you can do. And this creates... Um, it's like psychologically unsafe place to be because this conflict that inside you where your ethical principles comes into conflict with whatever your company does with time can produce a lot of anxiety for you and i'm just thinking sometimes about people working at let's say facebook And I don't judge, I don't know like what's going on inside there, but I'm just trying to think, to imagine like how, how can they cope with all this public image of the consequences of the product that they're working on and how they can justify their work at a, at a company. Yeah, so and you you've, yeah, and you've described, I mean, I think a very um, common value tension. Um, and so, you know, we've done some work on this. We published a paper last year, uh, which probably is not going to be that interesting of a read for a practitioner, but I think the, the general message of it will make sense. Uh, so we identified that, you know, technology practitioners take on a number of different identities in relation to their work. And those identities can actually shape 
their ability to succeed in a difficult environment or their or frame why they need to be able to move on. And so, um, for instance, we and we looked across a range of different professions. So, um, for instance, we saw a lot of software engineers in particular um, that w- would say, well, I'm a member of my profession. Software engineers do X. This is not an ethical thing. It's just a, a, an efficiency or, an, um, or a transparency thing. As long as I do that, I don't really care what, what happens with that algorithm downstream. And so in those kinds of moments, that practitioner could be perfectly successful, even in an environment where they're like actually doing work that's actively hostile to other human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you take somebody sort of similar to your story, where they are very much, um, you know, maybe not an activist, but maybe they're an advocate for users and for humans, and, the, and they want these um, digital products to be um, more um, equitably designed. If you're working in a company that doesn't even recognize that kind of value exchange, then you're, it is going to be psychologically unsafe for you to be there. You're not going to be able to act out your, your own moral standpoint. Um, and in fact, many of the people that frame them, their work in that way reported having left at least one job because it was a space where they, didn't, they couldn't have that strong value orientation or at least even a little bit of value orientation. Most people found themselves somewhere in between though. Um, and so we found a number of other um, different identities that people were able to take on to um, steer the conversation in a better direction with, a, with full knowledge that they're not going to fix everything overnight or maybe ever. And so a lot of these roles that people took on were, you know, I'm an educator to other people on my team. I'm going to constantly remind people and give them more tools to sort of think about these kinds of responsibility. Or I'm a learner. I'm going to continuously like figure out what are the tactics the tactics du jour that people are using to manipulate people and are there ways to make sure that we're trying to rid our work of those practices as much as we can. And so ultimately, you know, we're all human beings. We're stuck in these very difficult environments sometimes where uh, profit and accountability have to, have to like coexist somehow and different organizations have different ways of managing that. If you're going and looking for a job, I would try to find an employer that at least has some stated values about what they care about. Um, and notably, that doesn't actually occur in some of the large tech companies or even some of the medium ones that want to be large. Um, and so those might just not be places where you ever want to, to be in the first place. But even if you are in one of those organizations that feels very hostile to this kind of accountability, I think there are a lot of things that you can do um, that keep you active and not passive in continuously identifying these opportunities uh, to build ethical awareness yourself on, on behalf of your team, and then finding new ways to translate some of those eth- ethical concerns into ways that the organization might, not, if not respect, at least understand and value. And what we've seen in our work is over time, there's actually, I think, a growth of people, particularly that are just have entered the industry you know, within the last couple of years, within the last five to 10 years, that are actually much more ethically aware than some of their more senior colleagues that were trained in an era where these kinds of values weren't talked about as much. And I'll tell you, as a, you know, somebody who trained in graphic design back in the early 2000s, um, I almost never thought about or heard the words ethics or um, engaged in this kind of ethical decision-making or awareness as part of my practice. Um, and I know that for my students, they hear that all the time. Um, and I know that that's true of many other uh, design schools across the country. Um, and so I also see that there's a possibility for the winds to shift 
um, if there are enough practitioners that are willing to, to sort of put their mind behind it and um, continue to try to shift their organizational strategy. And why do you think ethics is becoming a more popular topic? Same as you, I haven't heard a lot of conversations about ethics 10 years ago or uh, 15 years ago. I didn't participate in any of them that uh, existed at the time. So I wasn't aware of this aspect of marketing, let's say. It was not even a consideration. It was like, you know, like you are doing something on the internet and it's very difficult to imagine a real human being on the other side. So uh, the humanity element is kind of removed and it always felt like, you know, uh, you're doing cool stuff, uh, but you don't really see people on the other side. And maybe that's, that's one of the reasons, but why this has changed. I mean, I think there are a number of factors that have really changed over the last couple of decades. Uh, one is that digital ubiquity that I don't think that we necessarily anticipated in the late 90s. There was, I think, the promise of the early internet that we would be able to gain empathy and understanding and you know, create this collective sense of oh, peace and understanding of the diversity that exists. And in fact, what we got was exactly the opposite. Um, especially um, in the, the social media era of, of the internet. Um, we found increased opportunities for polarization, um, increased opportunities to f- uh, be confused about what constitutes truth or relevant knowledge in certain domains. And, you know, in the late 90s, you could very easily exist without the internet. In fact, many people did it. Um, these days, you're actively excluded from opportunities if you don't engage in this digital economy um, in one way or another, whether you're a gig economy worker, whether you're just um, you know, buying products uh, to be delivered at home. You're, you're enge- you, you really have to engage with that digital um, environment in order to succeed. And so what that's done is that it's, it's exacerbated all the inequities that were baked into the internet in its founding, really. And um, so I think people are becoming increasingly aware of that, and rightfully so. I think one of the other big factors is the nature of disciplinary training has changed. Uh, We've seen a strong convergence. Um, Educators call this sort of this transdisciplinary realignment. Um, And so there's a lot of this bleed over in between disciplines that didn't really exist as much in the 90s that is commonplace now. So in my home discipline of user experience design, um, you know, we draw from almost every discipline that you can imagine to frame what a UX designer does. It isn't just about UI and it's not just about some programming or web development here and there. It's, you know, psychology and anthropology and marketing and advertising and visual communication. Um, So it's this uh, pantheon almost of different disciplinary perspectives that are informing you. And as soon as you have that complexity in play, it gives you many more tools to think about consequences, to think about what kinds of uh, regulations or, um, best practices should guide your work, and um, who's involved. And I think that's actually been the very positive thing about professional training over the last decade or so, even though there are lots of other things about the internet that have become increasingly problematic. So this kind of brings us to the other side of dark patterns and manipulation, which is the user, the person on the other side. And um, one of the things I like to discuss usually where there is a conversation happening that includes some sort of ethical aspects of a certain tactic that we use in marketing, is that users are aware that they often 
understand that they are manipulated. They see all these tricks that we try to play on them. And I think that by doing so, companies risk losing trust or they put themselves in a situation where they prevent the uh, creation of trust in the first place. And so my question to you is, what is the user perception of these tactics? Yeah, so um, we've done a little bit of work here and others have followed up with some more substantial studies. Um, what we found sort of across the board and others have as well is that I think users are quite aware that they're being manipulated. Um, the key thing, and you know, in the survey study that we ran several years ago now, it was um, upwards of 80% of users were aware that they were being manipulated in their day-to-day -day interactions with digital technologies, which is a huge number if you think about it. Yeah, it's huge. And so the key finding there is not that users are being manipulated. I mean, I think anybody that's in, the, in a technology discipline knows that there's an arsenal of tools to manipulate users. Yeah. Even in the pre-internet era, there were many tools that advertisers could use, some of which users were very aware of and other ones they were less aware of that were actually remarkably successful. You know, the end cap in the shopping market, you know, driving sales. I mean, it's something that's just well known to be a productive sales tactic. Um, and you don't mm -hmm. even need the internet to do that. The thing that's different than the, um, in, the, in the digital environment, though, is number one, it's very difficult to opt out of being in the digital world these days for reasons that I already mentioned. Um, and so it's not like it's, um, it's an extra thing. It's something that is really part of being a human being, part of being a citizen, part of being a student or a practitioner these days. Um, and the other thing is that often, even if users recognize there's something wrong, they recognize they're being manipulated very overtly, or they just recognize there's something off about this situation. I don't, can't put my finger on it, but something is, is a little bit wrong with what's happening right now. They have no idea what to do about it. There's no direct recourse. Um, and so um, this can vary pretty widely from, um, I recognize something is off, but I just don't have time to engage with it further. So I'm just going to move forward. So I'm just going to say accept all on that GDPR cookie banner and move on with my life because I don't have time to consider it. All the way to the other end of the continuum, um, I'm resigned to the fact that I'm being tracked relentlessly. I'm being surveilled. I'm being manipulated. I can do absolutely nothing about it. And so I'm going to give up. Um, and so uh, this is an idea from Nora Draper called digital resignation, where you just give up because you know the odds are stacked against you, so you might as well just capitulate. Um, and obviously, there are some opportunities for, for action on the part of consumers. Um, dark patterns has actually ended up being a helpful starting point for some consumers to sort of recognize, I can do something about this, or at least I can complain. So you have like the dark patterns tip line that's being um, hosted by Consumer Reports. You have the dark patterns detection project that's based in Germany. Um, you have a corpus of examples that my lab hosts as well to uh, provide these examples. Um, and you have conversations on Twitter where there is some connecting between here's a problematic practice, here's some regulatory authority, let's see what we can do about this situation uh, together. And so there are, I think, um, more of those forms of recourse than there were maybe five years ago. Uh, but just because people know that they're being manipulated and people generally know that they are, it doesn't mean that they know what recourse they have or even what harms are being produced. So if people know that they've been manipulated, for me, it implies brand damage. From marketing standpoint, I do care about the brand. And if the user on the other side thinks that they've been manipulated, it's definitely not going to make them trust to my brand, which is like my goal is 
for them to trust. And for me, it seems like it's a good opportunity to try to promote ethical tactics within companies because eventually you are going to piece off your potential customers or existing customers. And what it does, they, you know, uh, they, they start thinking, okay, I'm going to switch to another product. First chance I got. Yeah. Or we know like some companies like Amazon, they probably hold a very tight grip on the market and they can allow themselves to do things like the prime subscription series of dark patterns, which is, uh, you know, uh, you, you can look this up on the internet, but th- th- there are a few videos that show exactly, you know, what you need to do, uh, how many steps you need to take to cancel your prime subscription. But this is a prime example of dark patterns. And so there, there is probably like an annoyance threshold from a user perspective. Okay, so what are, what are the trade-offs for me? And so maybe Amazon is in such a situation they can allow themselves to practice such tactics. But in a more competitive niche, if you can create a brand that doesn't practice dark patterns, this could be a competitive advantage, I think, especially with rising awareness from user perspective, which sometimes, you know, uh, easy to see if you go explore uh, certain subreddits. There are a lot of very interesting discussions where people express all sorts of feelings on how they interact with digital products. Yeah, I mean, I think that idea of a competitive advantage for not using dark patterns or for maybe even using bright patterns, patterns which actively sort of celebrate users' agency and autonomy is a desired end state. Um, and I think that's what Harry sort of originally had in mind when he you know, created this hall of shame. He wanted organizations to do the right thing and to, be, um, to derive benefit from it. Um, I don't think it really accurately describes the present day, though. I mean, there is this canonical view in yeah. marketing and advertising that if you gain a user's trust and if you do the right thing, good stuff will follow. And I think there are a lot of companies for different reasons that have found I can use really seedy or problematic c- tactics that maybe undermine that trust, but either because of my market power or because somebody is locked in to a product over a period of time because they've been using it for a decade um, or many other reasons that the trust really isn't important. Um, And I think the other thing that that sort of happened in parallel with this is that there's been a massive drive towards B2B2C products in the last decade that are subscription-based where the person that's using it isn't the person that purchased it. And in fact, they don't have very many much leverage over the purchasing power at all. So like at Purdue, I have a subscription to Office 365, which I did not purchase. My organization purchased it on my behalf. But as a result of that, I know that my everything regarding my calendar and my email are being actively monitored and sent to dashboards that some other people upwards in the stream of my organization can view. I have no idea what they do with that information, if anything. But there's nothing I can do about it either without moving all my stuff to a non-supported platform, right? And so even if all the dark patterns exist in a situation like that, there's nothing that I as a, as a consumer or a user can really, really do to actively um, change the situation. The other area is just that we're seeing is really the power of substantial market power. And so, you know, back in the United States, one of our large subscription radio products that's comes pre-installed on a lot of vehicles, Sirius XM, 
for years, they've used um, this forced continuity approach where you can very easily subscribe to the product online and change your subscription. But if you want to unsubscribe, you have to call them up on the phone and get a sales pitch, you know, that lasts 10 or 15 minutes to try to keep you to stick with the product. Now, it looks like the FTC is changing regulations to make those practices um, illegal in more concrete ways than they have in the past. But in fact, certain kinds of companies have gained substantial power and market advantage primarily through such tactics, and they're not going to be likely to give them up without a fight. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I, I think this is an, an, an instance where the rhetoric around, you know, building trust in a, in a brand or a company doesn't always coincide with the reality of how users are sort of engaging or being forced to engage. Yeah. So dark patterns and manipulation are extremely effective, right? Absolutely. That's, so that's probably the cornerstone of the problem. So companies like to utilize them because they work in terms of bringing money in so the problem here is at what level should we care more about ethics to try to change the situation is this a problem of ethical awareness on a society level or is it individual level so i think there are things that all of the stakeholders that you mentioned can do but um i think the the classic trap that a lot of people fall into is to say it's the user's fault they've said yes to this data collection or that, or, you know, it doesn't matter that they have to purchase the product. Um, you know, they should be more invested. They should read the terms of service to really be sure about what they're doing. So there's been this constant backlash against the, the technology user over the last two decades in ways that's been quite problematic. Um, and so I do think that users should be more aware, but it's not quite the same situation as with advertising in its traditional form. Um, so, you know, I grew up with the, the adage, I don't know how well it translates into other contexts, but you should never go to the grocery store hungry because you always end up buying mm -hmm. way more food than you have, than you, than you need. Because then you're, you know, you're hungry and you're able to see all these products in front of you and you end up purchasing many more things than you would otherwise. Well, what is the equivalent, if anything, for digital products? You know, is it doing a digital detox? Is it, um, you know being hyper aware of your interactions with the digital product, a lot of those things end up failing because they don't really account for real, real world patterns of use. And, you know, with the ubiquity of technology, I think it's very difficult for a user to really take control over their environment, even though, you know, that might be the easiest fix. Certainly companies can become more aware and generate value propositions that are more externally facing to users around their use of brighter patterns. I'd love to see that become a point of conversation, even if I'm a little bit dubious about it happening. I think there's a role for technology practitioners to play in amplifying the role of these kinds of decisions that need to be made in their discipline. So I'd love to see software engineers say, actually, you know, the potential misuses of machine learning algorithms needs to be central to our discipline, not a byproduct, not a peripheral thing. I'd love for marketers to be thinking about how are we, um, how are users perceiving, you know, the claims that we're making and how do they know that we're actually telling them the truth and giving them a proper choice. And then I think there is, you know, a, a role for regulatory and legislative bodies um, that's always going to come after, though. It's very difficult for it to come before. I think GDPR was relatively unique in that it set aside some rights that you know maybe scholars had identified as something that people needed, but many individual users hadn't identified that they needed. And so there's room for more legislation and regulation, but often it takes many years after that regulation. We're seeing this now with GDPR for things to really start to get fixed. 
um, and for it to start to stop some of the gaps. And so I don't think that we can rely on that as our only mode of engagement moving forward. So practitioners, I think, need to lead the charge, though, in actually doing something about it. They're the ones creating the products that are shaping our current reality. And um, we probably need to be more accountable for actually running, uh, controlling some of the regulatory practices as well as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they are creating the products. And so software engineers might be very consciously aware. And I'm just imagining like marketers and software engineers at, let's say, Facebook are very aware of maybe ethical concerns, but there is so much pressure from shareholders mm-hmm. and they probably know that, that they, can be, they can be replaced. And many people I know like, all right, so if, I'm, if I refuse to do that, somebody else will do it. So I'm a bit skeptical about that. This can only be changed from within the profession of, let's say, marketers or software engineers, designers, because there is dictate from the top as to what needs to be done. And unfortunately, we know that there always will be people willing to do the job if it's unethical. And so this creates a situation if we have an unethical company and if they really want to do something, they will find software engineers and marketers and designers who don't question things from the ethical standpoint. So yeah, no, I think your skepticism is well-founded. I think your skepticism is well-founded. There's, um, it bears out in the stories that we've heard from practitioners as well. And so what the message that I'd like to convey is not, you know, you're a bad practitioner if you can't like fix it all and force people to do the right thing. Um, because in many situations that's going to be untenable as like, as a sort of end state in, in itself. Um, but I think there are ways of making the situation better, but they involve the multiple stakeholders. You know, if you are hearing from user research that users feel manipulated, that gives you some power to go back and say, are there other ways of achieving our KPIs that don't involve some of those practices that people find to be problematic? Um, the more regulatory guidance that we have, um, that also helps, I think, move the needle and giving us some other sources of knowledge that are external to the organization that can help indicate where where liability might fit, but also where you know users might be expecting more from companies um, now or in the future. Um, it has to be some combination of these things. Um, it can't be just one of these stakeholders operating in isolation from the rest. Yeah. I, I wonder if there are some companies that exist today inherently don't fit into an environment where users respect it, right? Uh, not exploited. So some of the companies come to mind that they are built on the manipulation, on exploitation, on tricking users, do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. Yeah, and there are certain companies, including you know a lot of the large tech companies, that, especially ones yep. that are involved in social media, where the core value proposition is really based on surveillance capitalism of some mm-hmm. sort, where where data is the is the money that sort of drives the machine, um, and increasingly platforms that value engagement above all else. And so you can look at some of the arguments surrounding TikTok and Instagram and even YouTube mm-hmm. and Netflix as sort of these things that are so engagement driven that, you know, how can you sort of think about conscious consumption of those platforms when addiction is almost built into the DNA of the company? I think you do also have some examples of companies where there are some identifiable values. doesn't mean that they're always playing through. 
Um, but it means that at least there's something to compare their actions against. So, you know, with Microsoft, one of their core stated values is sustainability. And you can see how it impacts a lot of the decisions they make in their organization on a structural level and even on a product level. Um, I'd love to see it go further, but at least there's something to hang your hat on. Similarly, with Apple, you have a commitment to privacy. So, you know, you see that driving their product decisions around what they move out of the cloud and move on to device and the ways that they want to manage user data a little bit differently from some other platforms. Um, I'd love to see those kinds of value statements become much more prominent because then it makes the work of a consumer, I think, easier in making some of these key decisions about who they want to engage with and what kinds of products they want to buy into. Yeah, definitely a larger conversation because I think like big tech companies, of course, they engage in, in that kind of practices. But from the other side, I, I've seen a few products like social media where they don't collect any data, but you have to pay a fee like $1 a month. Mm-hmm. And those platforms just can't get off. Yeah. People seem like they just don't care. So it seems like a, a larger problem of awareness on a society level. And as you mentioned at the beginning, digital literacy, of course, matters a lot. Yeah, and a lot okay, of users, so, I, don't, uh, I don't think, have a good understanding of what data they produce. Um, you know, yeah. I challenge anyone to go uh, to Google Takeout and just get a printout of all the JSON files of all the data that's being tracked on you. You can do this similarly with some other products like Facebook and just get a sense of what five years of your data or 10 years of your data looks like. And often even the people that will say I have nothing to hide, it gets very creepy very quickly as soon as you realize the granularity of the data that's, that's out there that's actually driving your digital product experiences. So what worries you most out of the entire like industry in terms of manipulation and dark patterns and potential development in this entire digital sphere? What's your doomsday scenario? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if it's a doomsday scenario. I mean, the, the conversation around dark patterns is, is rapidly shifting towards harms, towards understanding those harms better, and specifically towards the harms that are produced by algorithmically driven systems. And so my doomsday scenario is almost the scenario that we live in right now, because there are actually lots of dark patterns that are already being deployed through algorithmic mechanisms. And so some of the examples I gave earlier about like sneak into basket, that's pretty easy to identify once you know what to look for. Um, Just like in a grocery store, you'd, you'd sort of see if somebody slipped something into your cart. Or even something like the the little JavaScript tricks to say somebody, you know, five people are looking at this thing right now. If you you dig into the code, you can see a random number generators generating a number that's actually driving that interaction. The algorithmic harms, I think, are much more problematic because many of them are hidden behind closed doors or behind computing systems in ways that not even the generator of the algorithm necessarily fully understands. So this is why there's all this interest in algorithmic explainability and transparency right now, because... A lot of machine learning doesn't, people can't understand why it does the thing it does. You can just understand the inputs and the outputs. And so that's, that's in some ways my doomsday scenario in seeing these algorithmically driven systems generating new forms of dark patterns or exacerbating some of the biases that we were already able to identify in ways that people are increasingly less aware of. And even if they're aware of it, less able to fight back. Okay. And what, what's optimistic? What are, what are the good things? So I think I think optimism. Um, I have a lot of optimism actually around some of the current regulations that are making their way into practice. Um, there are several such 
uh, laws in the United States. Um, the Digital Services Act was recently passed in the EU. Um, and those laid the groundwork specifically for banning certain forms of dark patterns, um, which I'm quite excited about. Um, I'm interested to see what conversations emerge around that conver- that around value exchange and around what it means to actually ban some of those practices. And the best case would be that removing some of those practices actually doesn't change some of the core engagement figures, or it creates new business models that allow maybe those freemium products like you subscribe you described to survive and maybe disadvantages products which thrive only on our data as currency. Um, so that would, I think, be the, the best case or a better case than what we've got right now. All right. Well, thank you so much, Colin. Maybe you could tell uh, my listeners where, where they can find you and where they can find your work. Yeah, absolutely. There are a few places uh, that would be useful to go. Um, my professional website is colingray.me.me. Um, if you want to look more at some of these dark patterns examples, some of the ones that we've described today, uh, you can go to darkpatterns.uxp2.com. That's my uh, professional lab website. And then you can also look at some of the work that we've been doing over the last three or three and a half years uh, through the Everyday Ethics Project, um, everydayethics.uxp2.com. There you'll find some of the publications we've worked on, as well as a pretty extensive methods collection, which you can use to build ethical awareness and action in your professional context. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming to the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And this is the end of this episode. Thanks again to Colin Gray. I encourage you to check out the website that Colin mentioned, where you can find classification of dark patterns. The link is in the show notes. I'm very interested to hear what you think about the podcast and this episode. Reviews are much appreciated. You can also follow the show on LinkedIn and Twitter. That's it for now. Thank you so much and until next time. Bye.